Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Shauna McGarry. <laughs> she says, quickly, tell me your whole life before it starts to rain harder. <laughs> <laughs> that and more. But before that, I just want to say we have just uploaded onto our Patreon the most fabulous compilation of four anecdotes sent in by you, Risk listeners. You know, this is the third time that we've put together one of these compilations of some of our favorite anecdotes that you guys have sent in, but that we haven't run on the regular podcast. And it is so damn good. John LaSala did the editing on this one. I am about to upload, I guess, next week, this story that a fellow named Don Collymore shared with me about an incident that he experienced in 2016, marching with Black Lives Matter in the Toronto Pride Parade, a big thing that was all over the news at the time. That's also going to be on our Patreon soon. There is all this bonus content to be found there on our Patreon. Bonus stories, interviews with people on the staff, me just checking in sometimes doing like, you know, uh, audio journaling. We have always said that if everyone who listened to the show regularly just pitched in a little bit, just a little bit, it would uh, just change the world for us. It would mean not only our continuing survival, but it would mean us really flourishing. It would mean us being able to even expand things, especially once we get through this insane period we're currently in right now. JC came up with the idea that if we get to $10,000 per month being donated to us on Patreon, that I would record a down-tempo version of the uh, Stamps.com theme song. <laughs> you know, like a, a, a jazz lounge version of it or something like that. So right now we're at 8500 per month, so we can get there soon. Come on, join us over at patreon.com slash risk. You can choose the amount you want to give per month. Or if you want to send us a one-time donation, that's at paypal.me slash risk show. And never forget that this support from our listeners is essential to us. When you support us on Patreon or PayPal, you can know you really are helping keep this running. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is the Paradise Bangkok Molam International Band behind me now. And we are calling this week's episode Self-Defense. I was thinking about how all four of these stories this week are instances where people were unsure or caught in a crunch figuring out how to best look out for themselves. This weekend, this is Labor Day weekend, I have just started the letter writing campaign. Uh, swingleft.org has a bunch of different ways that you can help to get the vote out. There's phone banking, there's text banking, there's letter writing, there's in-person canvassing, there's all these different opportunities all the time in different areas or virtually. You really should go to swingleft.org and see what they have that you might be able to do. So this weekend I'm doing letter writing. I've got 200 letters I want to write to potential voters. And I consider this work, this, you know, volunteer work, a form of self-defense. I consider doing whatever I can to stop fascism as a survival tactic. You know, activists are saying, work to get out the vote like your life depends on it because it does. 
So anyway, I've been doing this thing called subtext, you know, where I text fans of Risk and they can text back to me. If you want to become a part of it, it's at joinsubtext.com slash risk show. But anyway, just before I started recording this episode, I texted everyone saying, hey, I'm about to record an episode. Is there anything anyone out there would like me to say on the episode? And I was expecting that people were going to text back, say something about butts or whatnot. But this one particular fan wrote back, I will read you exactly what he said. He said, this is a thought that came to me in the heart of my first acupuncture treatment two days ago. My problem is that I know a given truth and I do not believe in that truth. I cannot emotionally connect to this thing that I know intellectually is correct. It's not cognitive dissonance, I guess you could call it emotional dissonance, where you intellectually know X is correct and true and valid, but try as hard as you can, you just don't emotionally believe it. It's this weird paradox to be in, uncomfortable as hell, and I'm wondering if others have experienced that too. (laughs) <laughs> I read that text and I was like, um, yes, <laughs> I experienced that so chronically. I actually quit my therapist a couple weeks ago because of this issue. I felt like the therapy that my therapist and I were doing was no longer moving and shaking things to the extent that I wish it was. And I went to look back for this old list that I wrote in 2016 that I brought into my therapist back then. I had written 20 myths about myself, negative beliefs that I habitually tell myself that are either not totally true or just not helpful. And after my father died a few weeks ago, I started thinking more deeply about I don't know, who I am and who I hope to be becoming for the future. And I came to realize that all 20 of those myths, all 20 of those negative beliefs that I wrote down, what, four years ago, they still have as strong a hold on me as ever they did before. I can give you an example of one of them because it's come up in stories that I've told before. I've talked about how when I was a little kid, like pre-kindergarten, I knew I was gay, but I thought that that meant that I was defective or deficient, subnormal, like my soul, like the core of myself was deformed and damaged, and thus I would always be less than everyone else in some fundamental way. I would always be inadequate or not as qualified for everything as everyone else. Now, obviously, as I grew up, I learned that on an intellectual level, I learned being gay doesn't make you any less than anyone else. Of course, obviously. But on an emotional level, I still struggle with that perception of myself constantly. So that unhelpful belief, that negative myth, just stayed hardwired in my thought patterns and my mood patterns. It's very ingrained in my neural pathways. So, you know, I got a lot of good things out of my old therapist, but after my dad died a few weeks ago, you know, and I started looking more closely at myself, I found it really disturbing to realize that all of those destructive myths about myself that I wrote down a few years back are still haunting me as much as ever. I just haven't made much progress in dispelling these myths. So I've started looking for a new therapist, but it's a, it's a weird time <laughs> to be looking for a new therapist because I mean, for Christ's sake, everything, everything is just triggering depression and anxiety. My hope and my prayer is that 2021 will be the beginning of things improving so that we at least have enough breathing space to start to work on the trauma that was 2020. But of course, my fear is that 2021 will be worse. In any case, we're all 
sharing our own little bits of self-defense, self-care. We're all just doing the very best we can. (laughs) There was a Risk fan who sent me a care package maybe four months ago now, around about in April, I think it was, and it had some edibles in it, if you know what I'm talking about. I I lost the contact information for that risk, man. So I would like to say, hey, if you're still out there, email me again. You know, when all else fails, there's the edibles, I guess. Oh, another listener on subtext texted me to say she hoped that I would encourage people who do have relationships with right-leaning folks that maybe they could share stories of theirs about the communication that they do with conservative folks in their lives. Um, If folks out there who are listeners have anything that they might like to share about that phenomena, the dynamic of those kinds of relationships, you know where to find me. I'm at Kevin at show.com. You know, I, I've said many times on the podcast before that we welcome the perspectives on the show of storytellers from all different walks of life and points of view. I do know that a lot of folks out there have family members or friends who I do also know that people can wake up, that people can finally see the light. And that especially when it comes to racial awareness, especially when it comes to getting educated about the real history of this country and how anti-racism can work, that is something that, like, damn near every white person needs some growth and evolution around. So I do highly encourage people to attempt to have those conversations with loved ones in order to at least make some cracks in the darkness where light might finally start to shine through for some folks. Anyway, we have a phenomenal bunch of stories for you on this week's episode. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Molly Cameron, a story that she shared when Risk was still doing live shows in theaters at Caveat in New York City. Before that, a story that was sent in by a Risk listener, Florian Byers, who is in the Netherlands. Florian is blind, which you'll hear about in his story, but that's a perfect example of these short little anecdotes that we're asking you to send to us. But before Florian and Molly, we're going to hear from Shauna McGarry. Shauna is back on the show this time at one of our live streams. This was recorded. You can find Shauna on Twitter and Instagram at Shauna McG. Here she is now. This is Shauna McGarry with a story we call Madam President. I went to college in New York City, an art college, and most of my friends were women and queer and late bloomers, which is a term I hate. I hate, (laughs) it's like the moist of classifiers. Uh, There's just no other vernacular to fully describe uh, like the uber nerdy, romantic, very content to be virgins that we were. Um, (laughs) So we just couldn't believe that this was our life now. Like we went to film forum on Friday and saw foreign films. And then, you know, on Saturday we second acted plays. Second acting is when you don't have enough money to buy a ticket. So you sneak in at intermission. And then afterwards we'd go eat pizza and pretend to be these sophisticated critics. Like, I didn't see the beginning, but I really didn't feel like they earned the ending. Um, And I felt so safe. And I just thought that this beautiful artistic community was just going to be my life forever. So when I moved to Hollywood in 2005 and became a TV writer's assistant at age 22, 
I was continually shocked at the stark reversal of my environment. And 15 years later, I still am not really over it. Um, the men who ruled TV writing rooms then were just so different. It was like, wait, so you haven't seen Hedwig the Angry Inch, both the movie and the stage version? You don't read bell hooks while reading, eating takeout and while your roommate rehearsed lines from How I Learned to Drive? You just all married like these shrewy women who now you resent and never want to go home to? You need me to explain what queer even means? You think it's hilarious that I'm a vegetarian? Why? Am I not funny if I don't know why that's funny? I knew why they thought it was funny. I was like a pudgy Ani DeFranco, and it was just like the icing on the cake. Um, so, yeah, it was just hard. And then I got my first job on this like big network action drama. You know, the the whole staff was men. There were 18 people on the writing staff, and only two of us were women, and we were both assistants, me and Kim. One day, I uh, was really upset, I think because this writer had told me he was impressed that I had eaten the whole bagel so openly, and I went into the bathroom to cry, and I found Kim there, and she was also crying, and uh, it just sort of became our thing. It was like this safe space where we would meet and sometimes cry and sometimes just vent and pee and period into toilets and just were this like supportive environment for each other. And it was just this bright spot in this otherwise sort of gross environment. This other bright spot during that time was that the TV show's fictional president was played, American president, was played by Cherry Jones. So Cherry Jones, if you don't know who she is, she's actually like a really big deal. She um, has won two Tonys. She originated Sister Aloysius in Doubt. She played Amanda in The Glass Menagerie. She's on Transparent as like this Eileen Miles type. She's on Succession. Uh, she's just like one of those like goddess type women. And I was like obsessed with her. So I would try to go down to set as much as I could to watch her takes. I just, I loved her. And the writers like, thought that was funny too. <laughs> and so they thought it would be great if I uh, got a role. They gave me like a small little part on the show. Uh, so <laughs> I got to play her presidential aide. And yeah, like, of course, I created this whole backstory where I was like basically her butch Monica Lewinsky. And uh, so when I handed her a telephone my line was madam president homeland security is on the line but really like what was going through my head was uh madam president i love you i love you i love you um so yeah it was just she made it great and then a year into me working there the writers did this surprising thing they gave me a script i think maybe because i worked really hard or maybe just because they have to pay a fine if they don't uh, hire a diversity writer, uh, which is a real thing. But I was super happy to have a credit, and Cherry Jones was ecstatic to have a woman's writer's name on a script, so she like took me under her wing. Cherry Jones takes a lot of people under her wing. She's this really empathetic person from Tennessee. Like We had a gay PA, and one night he delivered a script to her, and she invited him in for dinner and wine, and he just regaled us with the charm of it the next day. And I don't know, I think, you know, he had to be told at work not to wear mesh sleeveless uh, tank tops. So I think we both had this like secret appreciation for this middle-aged actress in linen pants and sparkly eyes. Um, when the show ended, she invited me to spend a whole day with her walking around New York City. And we talked about plays and life and like good donuts. And to this day, it's like one of the best of my life. It's just, I can't believe it happened. And then several years after that, I finally did get staffed on a sitcom um, with another mostly male staff um, starring like an 80s film star now with capped teeth sort of situation um, in his late 40s, early 50s. And it, there were three women on staff this time, but it still uh, wasn't the best. It was still like toxic and totally a like sexist shithole. So, but most of the time it was okay. Like I really loved my coworkers. They were good to me. I mean, I wanted to strangle them with the fat thighs I had grown out of uh, defiance and protection of myself, but still like I loved them very much. Um, but there was this one day that was kind of bad. 
So we would all gather in a big room to punch up scripts, which means just trying to add more jokes. More jokes, more jokes is like the name of sitcoms. And I was trying to pitch something. I was still a young writer. Um, So I would say something like, what if a protagonist and he this one writer who was really tall and kind of tigger-like and like super boundless in his energy, um, he said, shh, in the middle of my sentence, like as a bit, let's call him Ken. So I tried again. Um, Okay, so what if B, shh, and everyone sort of like awkwardly chuckled. I was like, because you have to be a good sport. And I was like, so, okay, what if, uh, and shh, and just closer and closer every time. What? what? Shh. And I uh, said, all right, never mind. And I looked away, like just really determined not to cry because there is no crying in TV writing rooms unless your lunch order is wrong or your showrunner is telling some sob story you have to pretend is really interesting. So that's when Ken sort of like knee walked over to me. He used to sit on the ground, so that was like the easiest access point, I guess. And he came up to me in my chair, and he said, Shauna, I'm so sorry. You know I love you. And he tried to kiss me on the lips in front of all the other writers. And with this voice, that, and I don't know where it came from, I pushed him, and I said, get off me. And he looked so pained, and he like knee-walked <laughs> back to his silly little seating area, and um, pretty soon after that, we were let go on this break. And I went to go somewhere, and Ken followed me out of the room, and he kept saying, Shauna, you know I love you. I'm so sorry. And I just said, Ken, drop it. It's over. Drop it. But he wouldn't stop saying, Shauna, I'm so sorry. You have to forgive me. I love you. And drop it. Drop it, please. And he pulled me into another writer's office and pushed me into a corner And he had both of his arms on the wall above my head and his feet around my feet. And he wouldn't let me leave the corner. And he kept saying, Shauna, you have to forgive me. I love you. You don't know how much I love you. I love you. And I kept saying, I forgive you. I forgive you. And he kept saying, I love you. Forgive me until I did start crying. And then as soon as I started crying, he left the room. The fact that He didn't leave until I started crying is important to me, but maybe not an important detail to other people. I don't know. Anyway, then we just both went back to our jobs. Ken wasn't like a bad guy to me all the time. Sometimes he was very kind. I think he supported me in getting staffed on that show. He's a good dad. He's funny. I just don't think he should be in rooms or be in charge of rooms. And I wish my story were singular, but it's one of many. Um, But I tell you all that to tell you what I did next, which is I uh, went online and I spent a good chunk of my savings on a weekend in New York. Uh, I took a red eye that night. I got a hotel room at this really posh hotel that gave you free fucking bagels. I made (laughs) dates with all my late blooming friends and I bought five Broadway tickets, Friday night, Saturday matinee, Saturday night, Sunday matinee, Sunday night. One of those plays was Sarah Treem's When We Were Young and Unafraid, which is this play that's about a woman in the 1970s who opens a battered woman's shelter. And she welcomes all these people. And not coincidentally, it was starring my American president, Cherry Jones. So... I got to the theater and the whole place was just full of women. Like it felt like the bathroom with Kim, except the seats were red and velvet and much nicer. (laughs) And I um, got sat between um, these two much older women. Um, (laughs) One had a walker and a wheeze and the other had a colonoscopy bag. And I was like, is this my future? Would it be bad? And, um, (laughs) And the play started and I, 
I just started crying from the beginning. I like weeped the whole time. The play didn't have to be about feminism in the 70s, it was, or like a high school nerd who was trying to figure her way out, it was. It didn't have to be about queers trying to like live on this beautiful island in Washington, it was. And it didn't have to end with Cherry Jones giving this like amazing monologue from her kitchen about why she started this battered woman's shelter, which was because her lover was murdered by her husband. I mean, come on, it didn't matter. It could have been, I mean, I just cried the whole time. I just cried. And the two women next to me <laughs> looked at me with sideway glances, like super pissed off. And I was so sad they didn't understand. Huh? But at the same time, like I can't really blame them because annual theater passes to Broadway are expensive and no one wants to sit next to like a 90s crying Claire Danes, you know? <laughs> um, but it was cathartic. <laughs> So then the play ends and I'm waiting out in the alley for Cherry Jones to come out. I hadn't really told her I was coming. I didn't know if she remembered me. I mean, it was six years later. I felt like such a loser. Like I was just like, this is so stupid. And she comes out and she kind of beelines for her bike um, because she's, you know, she's like four months into this play and she doesn't really want to talk to people. And she's wearing a bike helmet with a blinking light that's already turned on because it's starting to lightly drizzle. And I'm like, oh my God, like she doesn't even want to, I mean, she's not even, this is so ridiculous. So, and then she looks up as she's locking her, unlocking her bike and she goes, Shauna? And I'm like, Cherry, Cherry. And she comes over to me with her blinking light and <laughs> she says, quickly, tell me your whole life before it starts to rain harder. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, uh, well, the play was so good. You know that? Um, so I don't know. I finally got staffed. I mean, at the show, is it's a weird, like, I wouldn't watch it, you know? But um, yeah, you know, like the showrunner asked the, his assistant last week if he left his wife, would she move in with him? And, you know, our lead actor called the lead actress a cunt on Twitter. And um, this guy just told me he loved me like over and over again. It's a really nuanced story. I don't really quite know how to explain it. But, you know, and then I just started to cry again. <laughs> and she looked at me with those blue eyes that have made her like the modern oracle that she is. And she said, write a play. And then she got on her bike and she just zoomed off into the rain. <laughs> and I don't know, I went back. The next morning was Monday. I flew home. I went to work and I didn't tell anybody, any of the guys, anybody about the weekend until I, you know, telling this story. And um, I just didn't think they would understand, you know, so... I don't know what it means, what Cherry Jones meant by that. I mean, she really likes theater. You know, I'm, I'm pretty sure she's doing some of this TV work for money. Um, but I think it also meant, like, that I have to be my own agent, that we can only be accountable to ourselves, and that uh, we have to write for ourselves. So I started doing stories like this. I started only taking jobs where I felt like, it was going to nurture my voice and grow my voice and not diminish it or ridicule it. And I've kept that promise. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, thank you, Madam President. That's my story. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Shauna McGarry, everyone. <laughs> We're at the end of a workday. A very long, very annoying workday. I want to go home. I'm done with the universe and life and everything else. So I take the train home. I always take the train home. This is a very familiar train to me. As we're coming up to my stop, I get ready to leave the train. And leaving the train in this country involves walking down a few steps to get down to the platform. And I've done that millions of times by now. I hold on to the handrail with my right hand while my guide dog goes first, and I'm holding on to his harness with my left hand. As we're doing this maneuver, someone, without asking or prompting, grabs onto my right elbow. Now, this is not wanted and very dangerous, because that could unbalance me and make me fall. So that is actually a big no-no. This guy doesn't notice. He is very, very enthusiastically telling me that he's got a hold of me. He's got a hold of me. He's, he's almost having a party on his own, really. And I turn to him and I'm like, yes, you appear to have a hold of me. I need to get off this train, though. 
this is my stop. The door is about to close and I want to move on with my life. Could you not have a hold of me? And at this point, I think I'm a bit of a party pooper because I think he really wanted to do a good deed and I sort of spoiled that. So he begrudgingly lets go of me, sort of halfway holding onto my elbow as I leave the train. Maybe he thinks I'm about to fall backwards. I don't know. This happens all the time, not to me very fortunately, but I've heard stories, so I shrug and move on with my life. I walk across the platform, and I go down to where the traffic light is, because there's one big intersection that I have to cross to get home. I'm waiting at the blind accessible traffic light, because not all of them here are, but most of them are, and they are very distinguishable. Uh, Slow ticking means red, fast ticking means green. So it's not rocket science to figure out. As I'm waiting for the light to turn green, a woman comes up to me and grabs hold of my arm. Again, without asking me, or without any, like, prompting from my end. And in this super simpery voice, she goes, Don't worry, sir, I'll help you cross the street. At this point, I'm getting a little bit annoyed. As I said, this doesn't happen to me very often. That it happens twice in ten minutes is really annoying. This woman comes across as what I call a karma hunter, someone who really just wants to do a good deed to make herself feel better rather than actually helping anyone. And I am really not in the mood for it today, so I get a little brusque. I'm like, um, no, I'm, I'm just waiting for the traffic light to turn green, actually. And just in that same annoying tone, she goes, oh, well, um, how would you know it turns green, though? I'm like, well, when it's slowly ticking, it's red, and when it's not, it's green. Oh, and and can your dog hear that? At this point, I am done. I'm like, no, I can hear that. Fortunately for this woman, the light turns green. So I get to go on with my day. I get to rage, and I get to, like, unleash some frustration on a computer game rather than a hapless bystander. It's not okay to just randomly grab people and bring them where you think they need to go without asking. Especially not in this time of COVID-19 where keeping your distance is so important. I hear stories from people where this whole six feet distance rule is completely broken by people who just do exactly what happened to me. Even now, even without wearing a mask or without any protection equipment, they grab a hold of people and do the karma hunter thing. And that is not okay. That is violating someone's personal space, actually putting them in danger in some respects. So next time you see someone you think might need help, do the right thing and just ask first. Hi, I'm Molly Cameron. Let's get into this. Before I left for a semester in Prague, I told everyone I was doing better. I was seeing an on-campus therapist at the end of my sophomore year of college, and when I was in that tiny room, all that anxiety felt very manageable. And at this time in my life, I never remember anyone saying the words eating disorder. But I was trying to skip meals with coffee, I was counting every calorie, I was going to the gym all the time, and I definitely had an eating disorder. And this was a problem, but the overarching problem that I learned in therapy was all this anxiety. I was trying to be perfect at everything, and deciding what perfect meant was exhausting. But at the end of the summer before I left, I felt like I was doing a little better. I was eating some real meals, I was getting sleep, and I thought that when it was time to return to schoolwork, maybe I wouldn't cry over A minuses. But when I landed in the Czech Republic at the beginning of my junior year of college, I realized very quickly I was far away from that little room. I was far away from all these people I had made promises to, and conveniently with this brand new group of people who didn't know what I was up against. So it was going to be much easier to just pretend nothing was going on. And I was in Prague to study arts and social change. And it was a program that focused on cultural immersion. So that meant that we weren't in a big fancy dorm with other American students, but we were placed with individual host families around the city. And me and the 11 other students didn't go to a university either, but we were all in this one little classroom every day, just us taking classes together. 
And we had teachers that came in and taught us about Czech language and history and art and politics. And this was a very new and exciting way to learn and to live, but it was also totally overwhelming. I was a theater major, so I was used to having classes where we would like roll around on the floor and do breathing exercises and then like write essays about our character's history. And now we were talking about like the disillusion of Eastern European political regimes. Uh, it was very new. But what I did love was we would go on these architecture walks. And our art history teacher was this very like exuberant British man who walked very quickly. Uh, but he would point out everything from 12th century churches to like sad Soviet style apartment buildings from the 70s and tell us the history about everything behind it. And one of my favorite parts of the city was Old Town Square, which is pretty touristy, but I just loved the contrast there. Like you would have these old Baroque buildings with like frills upon frills and then more gold frills and ornaments and these giant statues from like centuries ago. And then you'd have like a McDonald's in the corner. And whenever we were there, I just wanted to stop and soak it all in and like see every little detail. We were always moving at this brisk pace that was out of my control. At that point, I was really feeling like everything was out of my control. Like I had this host mother who very nicely made me dinner every night, usually with a large amount of potatoes involved. And it was so nice for her to make dinner, but I really wanted to make my own dinner. I wanted to be in charge of everything that I ate. But even if I were in charge of it, I didn't even know what to eat because I had been spoiled with like salad bars and cereal at college and then I would open the fridge here and it was like a whole new world and then I would go to class and we would discuss things like describe how your host family's community structure reflects the changes of post-soviet Europe I'd be like I don't even know what part of that means and I turned in my first paper and I got a B and it was devastating to somebody who was used to getting at least an A and I just thought, shit, this is really hard. So I went back to the things that I was good at. I was good at getting up very early in the morning to go jogging. I was good at telling my host father, no, no, I only need to bring a yogurt for lunch because we have food in the classroom. And if one of my new friends asked if something was wrong, I was a good actor. And I would say, oh, I'm just very tired. And every night I would come home to this journal I had and just pour all these thoughts and feelings and all of my true self into this paper because I thought that is the safe place to keep this. If I can hide everything in this journal, then no one will know what's really going on and I can be fun, happy, cool Molly on the outside and no one will know that I'm slowly falling apart. So one day in this little classroom, we have a collage workshop and the assignment was to create a collage that represents your own vision of Prague. And they gave us like markers and papers and magazines, and then we were going to present it to the class. And I was really excited because I was in a real collage phase at that point. Um, this was 2003, so I was really into making collage uh, jewel case covers for people's mix CDs <laughs> and making like collage birthday cards. And of course, in my journal, I had a lot of collages. So I thought, finally, something I am good at. And I decided I wanted to make a Baroque statue, like these things I had seen in Old Town Square with all the ornamentations and frills. But I wanted to show this mix of old and new Prague, this contrast. So I was going to make this outline of a statue, but fill it in with little pieces of modern Prague. So like pictures from magazines of cars and fast food and fashion and modern architecture. So I built this outline and I cut out like arms and legs from a model, but then filled in the torso and the head with all sorts of weird little things. And the instructor that day was this guy that looked like Rivers Cuomo from Weezer. So I also wanted to impress him because I was like, this guy's a really cool art teacher. So I'm working on my collage and he comes around and he looks at it and he says, this is great. And I was like, oh my God, he said, it's great. This cool guy likes my art and great is maybe like an A, right? But then I thought, what if I could make it more great? 
What if I could make it an A plus? What if I could make my collage the best representation of arts and social change that this has ever seen, and all my classmates will love me, and my teacher will love me, and I am going to make the best collage that has ever been made? So I just kept cutting out more and more pieces and just like sticking them, and, and I still had this outline of a statue, but it was getting weirder. It was getting very thick. And I cut out like uh, the face of a clock to put on the face of the statue. I had the arms balance a coffee cup and then a tower of cocktails. I cut out the words work hard and pasted them against the bottom. And then I just got Sharpies and drew arrows at everything because uh, look at it, I, look at the statue. I was working right up until the last minute, just like sweating. And a part of me said, like, you can stop. And the, most of me was like, no, you can't stop. You have to make this the best collage. And right until he said, time's up, I kept working. So finally we finished. Check Rivers comes around again. And he looks at my collage, but this time he looks very sad. And he said in his very blunt Eastern European way, this is too much. You should have stopped earlier. And I felt the heat in my face and my insides were like shaking and it was like everything that I had pushed into that journal was somehow about to come out. And I tried to like tamp it down and be calm and tell him like, maybe I want it to be over the top. Uh, maybe it is too much. Maybe that's my vision of Prague. This is how I want it to look. And he just kind of like crossed his arms and frowned at it like, no. And. I knew that I was going to cry and I couldn't cry in front of my friends because I was cool. So I threw the collage aside and I ran into the bathroom and locked the door. But when I got in there, it was like I couldn't even cry. Everything was wound so tightly that I was just making these like, just like gasping like a fish. And thank God it was a single person bathroom. No one was in there to hear me gasping like a fish. But I didn't even know what was happening to my body. I just sat on the ground and my hands were shaking and I couldn't take in air. And then my vision started to go black and my hands just went numb. I have passed out before. I have a lot of medical fears, mostly needle related. So I had passed out a couple times and I recognized I'm about to faint. But like, what's going on? I'm in a bathroom. I shouldn't be fainting right now. So I just lay back on the cool floor of the bathroom, not caring how gross it was. And I put my hands over my mouth and breathed into them because I remember a doctor telling me to do that once when I had passed out. And finally, I got some air in. Finally, the light came back. I could feel my hands. I could feel my limbs. So I dusted myself off and I went out to present my collage. I don't remember what I presented that day. I don't even know if it was graded, but I did find that collage years later at my parents' house, and it was only then that I really understood what it was about. I had created a self-portrait. There were some beautiful things at the bottom, layers, but I had covered them up with so many other layers of fears and anxiety that you couldn't get to that part. There was the fear that I wasn't going to do well at my classwork and fear that I wasn't going to make friends and this like ever-present brain drain fear of my own body. And I know now too that what I had in that moment was a panic attack because that's what happens when you try to tamp down feelings and you don't share them with a human. And here I was trying to present myself as a perfect, unbreakable statue. So I still have that collage, and I have kept it as a reminder that when things are so bad that I can't even breathe, maybe I am hiding under too many layers, and maybe great is all I need to be. Thank you. If I am lost for a day, try to find me, but if I don't come back, got harder and harder each day December is darkest in June there's the light but this empty bedroom won't make anything right while out on the landing a friend I forgot to send home who waits up for me all through the 
This is Risk. This is Stars behind me now. And we just heard from Molly Cameron, who you can find on Twitter and Instagram at Raven McCoy. And before that, a little anecdote by Florian Byers that was edited by John LaSala. Now, remember, we are looking for your anecdotes still They could be about anything as long as they focus on one or two little incidents and you can tell them in about four minutes, you know, maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less, but not much more. We're also very, 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 very much so looking for scary story pitches right now of any length, tiny little scary stories epic scary stories stories about ghosts or knife wielding maniacs or nightmares or hallucinations or i don't know just near-death experiences whatever you know the kinds of things that you've heard on our halloween episodes before serial killers you know uh, exorcisms Whatever it might be, if you have a scary story or if you have an aunt or an uncle or a cousin or a friend of a friend of a friend who has a scary story, email me at kevin at show.com and let's make it happen. I swear to God, every year, every year I say, maybe this will be the last year we do one of these things because... It's just the hardest episode to put together every year, and then it turns out to be the best goddamn episode every year. So we're waiting, and we're we know how you are. We know how you are. We ask for it all year long, and you send in the pitches two days before Halloween. So let's try this year to get them in a little bit sooner than that. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries... If you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance. There's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Now our final story... On this week's episode, it's the return of Mark Abbott, who was so memorable the last time he was on the show, and this time he returned, only this time in a live stream. Now, one of the things about these live streams is that the storyteller is in their home. So, cats, kids, (laughs) you know, electrical appliances exploding, all sorts of things happen during these live streams. So I think in Mark's story, we had a little bit of noise from a child crying at one point. And then the private chat is always so funny to see, you know, among the risk staff of being like, oh my God, Kevin, is that your cat, Quincy? No, no, it's the storyteller himself who has a real child (laughs) who's having a real problem right now. But anyway, it didn't bother us because we were so riveted by Mark's story and Mark's storytelling. You can find Mark at Who Is Mark 
L. Abbott on Facebook and Twitter, and here he is now with the story we call Almost a Dead Man. So, it is 1985. I'm 12 years old in Brooklyn, and my junior high school is located in the Dumbo area. Now, you have to understand that Dumbo was not the trendy place it is now. It was all burned out factories, dirty side streets, squatter heaven. And right up the street from there were the NYCHA housing projects. On the opposite side of that was my school. Now, the interesting thing is that the bus that I had to take to and from school actually passed the school and had to go between these four housing projects. So we would get on the bus in front of the school, but the very first stop was the housing projects. And right there on that corner was where all the gangs used to hang out. And the one thing you knew about the projects over there is that if you didn't live there, you didn't go in there. And if you were going to walk by there, you'd go around the perimeter. And even if you did that, you need to mind your business, keep your face forward. So on this particular day, a bunch of my buddies and I, we get on the bus. And if you're familiar with the New York City buses, back then in the 80s, they had forward facing seats on the right hand side and passenger facing seats on the left. We all congregated on the right side of the bus and we're in these double seats and we're doing what teenagers do. We're making noise, we're being loud. And the bus turns the corner and stops right in front of that NYCHA housing project. And my window was open. And I happened to look out the window and standing there was this guy, we're gonna call him Ace. Now Ace was this medium build black guy very intimidating face. And he's giving us this hard stare. He's just like staring at the bus. And someone from behind me yells out, your mama. Now, you have to understand in the hood, that's fighting words. To Ace, this is a reason to kill someone. So he looks at me and he's like, did you just, you talking to me? And the dude behind me goes, yeah. And Ace turns does his signal and another one of his boys comes walking and he points to the front of the bus, turns back to me and he goes, you're a dead man. Everyone around me ran. They all ran to the front of the bus and I could not get out of the space I was in in time. So I did the only thing I could think of doing, which was get on the floor and get underneath the seat. So where I am, I can see Ace get on the back of the bus and he's looking around and he goes, all right, so where the motherfucker at that talking about my mother? Where you at, bitch? And he's looking around and I'm watching him and he reaches under his shirt and pulls out a gun. And he starts tapping the side of his leg and he's looking around. And he turns and he walks to the back of the bus. So now my body is going numb. I want to scream because I'm frightened, but my brain is telling me, stay absolutely still. And across from me, I can see the other students. And it's like almost like a bizarre tennis match because they're watching him. They're watching the other guy in the front and then they see me and they put two and two together. And one girl is watching Ace and talking to me, don't move, stay still. So Ace comes back into view and he's looking around and he's like, so nobody's seen him? Nobody's seen, hey, you seen him? And the other guy's like, no, nah, I don't see him. So Ace walks to the back of the bus. The second guy walks up and he has a gun. And it's at that moment I realize the bus the engines are not running. The bus driver has shut the bus off, but he hasn't left the bus. He's sitting in his seat. There are two gun-wielding 
gang members on this bus and he hasn't done anything to squash the situation. So now I'm wondering what would happen if I tried to run? Could I get out from underneath the seat? And at that moment, I see them come back and I'd start to tuck myself in further under the seat because I'm figuring the more compact I am, the less likely it is they're going to see me. But my head is sticking out far enough that I can see the both of them clearly. And then Ace turns and looks right at the seat I was sitting at. But he never looked down. Because he looked down, he would have seen me. But he's staring at the seat and he's like, the motherfucker was right here. I saw he was right at this window. And he looks around the bus and he goes, all right, so nobody knows where this guy is. All right, I'm tell you how this going to work. Whoever on this bus is his friend, let that motherfucker know tomorrow. If I see him, I'm going to kill him. And if you on this bus money, consider yourself lucky today. And then they left. And then the engine of the bus turns on that of the brakes kicks in and the bus starts moving. But I never get out from underneath that seat. And everyone sitting across from me is looking more terrified than I possibly felt. And by the time we got downtown Brooklyn, I finally got up enough nerve to come out from underneath the seat. And I walked straight to the front of the bus where every one of my friends is sitting. And I'm like, so y'all motherfuckers just gonna leave me. You just walk away and you leave me back there to get shot. Hey man, you, you shouldn't have said nothing. I never said anything. I was sitting there and I don't know which one of y'all said it, but it wasn't me. So how the hell y'all just going to leave me? I thought we were supposed to be friends. So now this thing is escalating. I'm screaming. They're screaming. But I don't realize how loud I am to the point where the bus driver finally says, hey, 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 look, you're going to yell like that. You're going to get off my bus. And without thinking, I turn around. I say, oh, you the motherfucker that shut the bus off and just let somebody get on and try to kill somebody. You call yourself a bus driver, a transit worker. And he stops the bus, pulls over to the curb, opens the door and goes, get off. And I'm like, gladly, I'm probably safe for walking home. And I get off the bus. I get on another bus to head home. And I'm thinking, I can't tell my father. My father's a cop. I tell him what happened. He's going to show up at the school with an army of police with him. And this is going to turn into something that I don't need. So I figure I'm not going to say anything. But at dinner, my mother's looking at me. And somehow mothers always seem to know something is wrong. I don't know how it is, but she knew something wasn't right. And after dinner, she says, come with me. And we take a walk down into the basement, into our family room. And she goes, what happened today? Something happened. And I just let it out. I start crying and I start telling her everything that happened, minus the gun. Because the last thing I needed my mother to hear was that somebody tried to kill me. And I just told her I was threatened. And my mother says, you know what I think? I think the reason why he didn't see you was because there was an angel looking over you. And that angel protected you and made sure nothing bad happened to you. Now, if that was supposed to make me feel better, it did not. Because, see, the simple fact is I had to go to school the next day. So I had to go back through those projects. So my mind, I didn't get any sleep because all I keep thinking is, what if this dude is at home right now trying to figure out ways to kill me? What if he ambushes me? What if I don't make it to the school safely. What, what am I going to do? Went to school and I ended up staying late and I come out of the school because everybody's gone and I'm heading to the bus stop when I see Ace and five of his boys standing down the street. And I'm like, ah, Christ. So I go back in the building and I go to the principal and I explain to her what happened. Minus the gun. She goes outside and calls Ace by his real name. As it would happen, he went to school there. So they knew him by his Christian name. And he comes over and she begins to explain to him what the problem is. He's looking at me and now I see that he recognizes me. 
And he's just kind of looking. And I said to him, look, my man, listen, that wasn't me. I don't know who that was on the bus, but that wasn't me. I would never say anything like that. I would never disrespect people like that. I, I, that wasn't me. He's staring. And I can't figure out if he's trying to figure out what's the best way to get me or whether or not he wants to drop the situation or whether or not he realized I never mentioned the gun. And he simply says, nah, man, we're good. We're all good. I ain't going to mess with you. So the principle is you sh- we're good when there's not a problem. No, no, I'm not going to mess with little man. He good. He good. I'm fine. And he walks away. And I see him talking to his buddies and they're pointing in my direction. And she waits with me while till the bus comes. She goes, make sure you go straight home. So I go home and this time I'm like, I got to tell my father. This is like one of those nightmares that's not going to go away. And I tell him the story. Minus the gun. And he basically says, I don't know why you're hanging around with them clowns anyway. Those, if they're real friends of yours, they would have stood by your side. See, now you learn a lesson. Now you realize what true friends really are like. Okay. So next day I go to school and we come out and we're all walking to the bus stop and Ace is walking toward us by himself. And he's looking directly at me. It's like Moses. Everybody starts to part like the Red Sea. And he gets close enough to me, looks at me and goes, sup, man, we good? And he gives me a pound. He goes, all right, man, take it easy. And he keeps walking. What I could never figure out is whether or not he did that in front of them to let them know that he knew it wasn't me or to really tell me we're good. I never saw Ace again. Don't know what happened to him. The irony is the school that I work in right now is that same school that I went to. So I pass that area every day. And every once in a while, I have to think, maybe my mother was right. Maybe there was an angel looking over me that day. And that wasn't my time to go. Thank you. For this week's episode, folks, this is Jesse Lawrence behind me now, and we just heard from Mark Abbott, who you can find on Facebook and Twitter at Who is Mark L. Abbott. 
The Risk live stream took a couple weeks off, but we will be back on September 10th at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. That's 6.30 p.m. Pacific. Just go to risk-show.com slash tour for your tickets. We'll also be having one on September 26th at 10 p.m. Eastern at 7 p.m. Pacific. That's again at risk-show.com slash tour that you get your tickets. I feel like I should mention swingleft.org on every goddamn episode of the podcast from here through November, folks. I'm just so impressed by how easy they make it for folks to get involved. So do check them out. And uh, remember, another thing to definitely check out is the Story Studio, our school at thestorystudio.org, because we have all kinds of workshops. We've been doing these one-offs, these masterclasses, where it's only an hour or sometimes they might be 90 minutes. There's one on September 16th with Brad Lawrence, one of our Story Studio teachers. You just heard him on the Best of Risk 19, I think it was. Uh, the one he's doing on September 16th is called, it's at 2 p.m. Eastern time. It's called Bringing Stories to Life with Scenic Detail. There's a great two-day workshop online with Gail Thomas on October 3rd and October 4th called, uh, well, it's just a level two. So it's for people who have had a little bit of story training already. And there's a storytelling for business one coming up on September 26th and September 27th, taught by Brad Lawrence. There's a storytelling for personal growth. That's a two-day as well on October 24th and 25th with Gail Thomas. The ones for personal growth are, you know, for people who usually brand new to storytelling who are, you know, wanting to look through old journals or start journaling or just start mining memories and start the process of looking through their life uh, for potential stories to tell. And, you know, oh, I'm so excited. We have booked a corporate workshop again that's going to be virtual. You know, like uh, we've we've had a great run. We've had a fabulous history, the Story Studio has, of working with clients like Google and Pfizer and American Express and Citibank doing in-person workshops. But, you know, during the pandemic, there was a lot of hesitation of, oh, my gosh, do we want to do virtual ones? Well, we do those now, too. So that is all at thestorystudio.org. And there's a lot of other links on your podcast player. If you check this episode, how to find us on Patreon, at PayPal, how to find our live shows, The Risk Book, how I'm at cameo.com slash thekevinallison, or that you can hire me as a coach at kevinallison.com, or that you can text with me at joinsubtext.com slash risk show. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Oh.